This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number three. landlord's point of view, you're going to have your tenants asking for rent relief. I've got to pay my bills, I've got to pay my interest on my mortgage and I'm not running a philanthropic society. Having said that, your tenants are your partners. In any negotiation, if someone wants something, you've got to trade something for it. Damn, I love that drop. How is everyone doing today? Thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm your host, Andrew Bean. Australia and the world are going through some really crazy times at the moment. I know there are a lot of people right now stuck at home, bored because of this damn coronavirus. It's really done a number on us. It's changed the way we interact. It's changed the way we live our lives. And there are going to be a lot of people that are doing it really tough right now, financially and emotionally. The most important thing is to stay positive, support one another, and remember... This is only temporary and it shall pass. In today's show, Chris Lang shares what to expect from your commercial tenant during the coronavirus and he even explains how to increase the value of your commercial asset during these times. If you own a residential property in New South Wales, you might already own a commercial development site. Yeah, that's right. Childcare centers are everywhere. And developers love them. They'll pay top dollar for them. Ellie Gescheit comes in and tells us what the requirements are to develop a childcare center. One of the key ingredients to investing well is finding where the governments are spending money on infrastructure. There's a lot of money going into Mackay right now. Jordan Miller shares with us exactly what's happening in that market. In this week's Everyday Investor on Fire segment, I have a really fun chat with Wayne and Dell Stitcher. They explain how they're using syndicates to, in their words, invest for dummies. Let's get to the show. My next guest is an urban planner and the director of Nabon Solution, Ellie Gescheit. How are you, mate? Yeah, really good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Welcome to the show. Ellie, most homeowners in New South Wales might not be aware that their personal place of residence could possibly be developed into a commercial use. Now, most councils in New South Wales allow the use of centre-based childcare facilities in residentially zoned areas. If your property is able to be developed, you might be able to attract a little bit of a higher price tag if you could sell to a developer, so it's good to know what to look for. What zone is usually required in New South Wales for a childcare development? Okay, that's a really good question, Andrew. Generally speaking, any residential zone allows a childcare centre. So pretty much almost every property within the Sydney metro area will be listed as a childcare centre being permissible. Obviously, that would need council approval, but yeah, generally speaking, pretty much any residential property allows for a childcare centre. Okay, well, that's good to know. What kind of land size is required for a centre-based childcare centre? Yeah, so every council have their own LEPs, their local environmental plans, and also their development control plans, DCPs. 
Yep. Now, I would presume every council have their own site requirements for childcare centres. So some might have, let's say, a 15 metre frontage or let's say maybe a 500 square metre minimum land size. But I guess, you know, someone that owns a piece of property would just have to get some advice on what the local council's requirements are with that. But, but I should say a lot of councils, though, would encourage childcare centres to be on a corner site instead of on a regular site. Is that so you can have access from both areas? Well, yeah, that's true, as well as if the childcare centre is going to be in a suburban area, quite often you need to have a basement car park. So when it's on a site, it makes a basement car park a lot easier. Also, from a design point of view, you're only left with, let's say, two neighbours if it's a corner site compared to possibly five if it's a regular, regular site. In your experience, I'm sure you've had a lot of these approved. What size site would you think would be a really good size for a childcare centre? Yeah, good question. I would look at probably a site that's around 1,000 square metres or so. A lot of the childcare operators, you know, years ago were looking at sites of about, they could accommodate around 40 kids because that was really the magic number that educators to say, and a lot of councils controls used to say you can only have a maximum of 40 kids. But nowadays you're seeing lot of centres that are, you know, upwards of 60, 80 plus, and obviously the site needs to be large enough too. Generally, there's the two main um, design considerations for a childcare centre is you need to have 3.25 square metres of internal play area, and as far as the outdoor space, you need to have seven square metres of outdoor play area. So those are the, so when you're looking at the size of the property, it becomes a numbers game, really, in terms of how many kids can you actually have on the property and how many would it, would you need for it to be become a viable business. Right. And so are there any surrounding amenities that the council looks upon favourably for approvals? Well, if the childcare centre, for example, is next to a park or next to, let's say, a church or something, not in other words, not a residential property, that certainly puts the centre in more favour in terms of council's eyes. If it's in an industrial complex where there's a lot of childcare centres there, that sometimes is a lot more favourable because there's no neighbours to complain about parking and noise. And are there any other requirements that seem to come up a lot with the council when they won't stamp that approval? Yes, and naturally, like as I just said, the two main impacts from childcare centres is traffic and noise. So generally the the childcare centre projects that I've been involved with, we can usually uh, resolve traffic and parking issues. In other words, the site has to be big enough to be able to provide all the required car spaces. That includes staff as well as parents dropping off and picking up their kids. But the other element is noise. Now, depending on how many kids the centre can hold, that'll trigger something called an acoustic barrier. So acoustic consultants will say you can have, let's say, 50 kids outside at one time, but the you need to have these screens along the perimeter, along the site boundaries of, let's say, two metres, three metres. That's to um, mitigate noise impacts to the neighbours. Oh, but okay. the challenge that I'm facing at the moment with existing projects is that councils, when you when you start, you know, most people have a regular 1.8 metre high boundary fence, whereas childcare centres require the fences to be raised, you know, up two metres, maybe even higher. So I'm finding, you know, as I said, traffic and parking can often be resolved. 
it's now these acoustic impacts which um, have become challenging. Oh wow! So it's not that the fence isn't just raised so the kids can't, you know, escape. <laughs> no, not at all. It's really uh, it's an acoustic engineering uh, purpose, so that you know if you're sitting next door and you're in a, in a residential property, you don't want to hear the noise of the kids. And there's really a science behind how that works. Yeah, fair enough. And how long do the approvals usually take to get stamped? To get rubber stamped, Andrew, it's um, not easy. I would a ballpark figure. I would give it around 12 months. Uh, there's a lot of complications with regular DAs, like if you're building a new house or a renovation. But with childcare centres, there's that extra um, extra complexity in terms of all these impacts, and often, you know, neighbours object naturally. So they also do um, they do influence the council's decision, and obviously, ultimately, the decision. And these days, a lot of um, childcare operators have to resort to taking the projects. To their DAs to court, yep. so that could uh, lengthen the the time. So that could push it instead of twelve months, it might push it out to let's say eighteen months or even longer. Okay, so you're probably giving yourself eighteen month buffer just in case, especially if you're in a neighbourhood with a lot of uh, grumpy old men. Yeah, exactly. Now we've and speaking of that, we actually have some projects in the new release areas like northwest and southwest Sydney, where there's currently no residents and the developers are just chopping up the roads and putting in new subdivisions. In those areas, you know, those are ideal, right? If you're if you're looking, you know, out, out that way. But there's still the challenges to uh, new release areas compared to you know existing metropolitan suburbs in Sydney. Where can listeners go to find out more about your services? Uh, yeah, good question. Well, I've got a website which is at www.navonsolutions.com.au. I'm also quite um, active on LinkedIn, so people can find me there also. Yep, you are. And are you still running your masterclasses? Uh, listen, I'd love to. I did have a masterclass about a month ago, actually, on childcare centres. Um, but obviously, with this uh, coronavirus uh, situation, I've obviously postponed my masterclasses. But I guess I'm looking at possibly doing them online with a webinar. So I guess look okay. out for that. And they might come back in future as well? Of course, yes. Okay. Excellent. Well, my guest today has been Ellie Gescheit. Thanks, mate, for being on the show. Okay, great. Thanks, Andrew. Joining me for today's market review is Director at Explore Property Commercial, Jordan Miller. How are you, Jordan? Good, Andrew, and yourself? Yeah, good, mate. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. The Mackay market seems to be heating up in 2020. What's actually happening in that market at the moment? Look, Andrew, after uh, a few years of consolidation in the market, the market has found uh, a new level. And we, we have seen the market, uh, I guess we, we've found a new bottom to the market at the moment. The market has stabilised over the last 12 to 18 months. We've seen a, a fairly strong increase in demand for commercial, retail and industrial space throughout the marketplace from a tenant perspective, which has started to drive down vacancy rates, which is a fantastic result. Excellent. What do you think is actually the driving force behind it? The, uh, the Mackay region at the moment, Andrew, there's, uh, there's almost a billion dollars worth of infrastructure projects going on 
around this part of the world right now. And that, that's obviously fueling demand for office accommodation, uh, for industrial space. But also the general economy has rebounded strongly along with the rest of Queensland in the last 12 to 18 months. That's really fueling demand. Population growth over the last two to three years in Mackay has increased substantially as well. And that's coincided with a real decline in the actual residential vacancy rate as well, which is all positive signs for the entire economy around the Mackay, Isaac and Whitsunday region. Yeah, fantastic. I know that's a big infrastructure project upgrading the Bruce Highway along there, isn't there? Yeah, so there's the Northern Access, uh, Bruce Highway Northern Access upgrade. There's also the Mackay Ring Road Stage 1, which is under construction at this point in time. Um, and Stage 2 has been funded in the forward estimates as well, which is um, those projects for the actual region. They, they provide short-term jobs during the construction phase, but they also provide a benefit to the industrial and, and logistics industries around this area. Do you see the increase in demand for jobs there in regards to the mining as well? Definitely, Andrew. There's, uh, there's actually a, a huge amount of jobs right now. There, there's a shortage of good quality, qualified tradesmen around this region. Also, healthcare workers. What kinds of tenants that you're getting lease requests from? What exactly are they looking for? If we look towards the industrial market to start with, we're seeing demand from transport and logistics companies. That could be a small local business right through to a large multinational company that's looking for a transport facility. If you look to the office market, we're seeing demand from small startup businesses right through to multinational ASX-listed companies and huge international engineering firms. Along with the rest of Australia at the moment, we are seeing an increase in the demand from businesses that are funded through the NDIS. That has definitely been a large increase in demand over the last two years. And from a retailing perspective, we're seeing a lot of, I guess you call them different businesses, people that are providing retailing services, but they might be doing it in a completely different way. And whether that be you know, trying to pivot the customer service offering, even other you know, online businesses that are setting up shop fronts to try and tap into a different market around this region. What yields are you achieving in the region at the moment? From a yield perspective, we've seen the investment yield start to tighten up over the last two years, given what's happening in other parts of Australia. From an investment perspective, we've seen yields start to improve. Where we would have got maybe 9%, you know, 12 or 18 months ago, that yield at the moment is probably around about the 8% sort of level. The bottom of the market, you know, in terms of smaller, lower quality investment assets, are around that sort of 95 to 10%. For something with a strong lease covenant, with a long lease term and a very strong whale, you're probably looking at something like seven to seven and a quarter percent around the Mackay region. Okay, that's really good, isn't it? What about the vacancy rate? Where are you seeing it for each sector? Probably the highest vacancy rate for our region would be the retailing market, which is no different to any other regional um, or even capital city market right now. The lowest vacancy rate right now would be for the industrial market. We've seen that vacancy rate drop by over 75% in the last two years. And wow. that industrial market's actually reached the point now where we're starting to see new DNC opportunities present because tenants just can't get something, you know, with crane capacity or high clearance or, you know, large areas of hard stand. That's very, very difficult to come by in the current market right now. Do you have any bold predictions for 2020 and beyond? Uh, I think 2020 is going to be one of those interesting years. Obviously, we're in the midst of the coronavirus uh, saga at the moment, which is, um, I think it's definitely spooking a few people. The, the share market is a little bit more volatile right now. But what that may present is better opportunity for people to get into something a bit more stable like the property market. Uh, we, we are still seeing demand from investors for property assets in this part of the world, which is fantastic. Throughout 2020, we expect the demand for office space to continue to improve. And the next market that we'll start to see evolve, probably in a higher volume, is people doing DNC opportunities around the industrial market in the Mackay region. 
All right, fantastic. We'll wrap it up there. Today's market review has been brought to you by Jordan Miller from Explore Property Commercial. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. At Developer Life, we are always searching for property with development potential. If it's time to sell and you own a commercial or residential property anywhere in Australia that you think has development potential, we want to know about it. We might be able to pay above market prices. You can contact us through our website at www.developalife.com.au or call us on 0410-694-633. Now back to the show. Chris Lang, the mentor and advisor from the Property Edge Australia, returns once again today. How are you, Chris? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Chris, with the recent outbreak of the coronavirus, and it's seeming like it's going to get worse before it gets better, what effect do you think it's going to have on commercial property? That's a pretty open-ended question, and, and I say that because we've never been through this before, so it's going to be hard. I mean, I can give you my best guess based on quite a few years' experience and seeing how other major events have affected property, but it's going to be tough for everyone. And tenants are going to feel the pinch, and particularly retailers. They're the ones that are going to be most affected. Of recent times, the retailers have been doing it tough, and it's been the food and the restaurant and cafe tenants that seem to have been okay. But if they're asked to shut down, it's then going to probably only be the supermarkets that are, are really trading because they're, they're talking about closing cafes and pubs and in a sort of overall lockdown. So it's going to be tough. I mean, from a landlord's point of view, if it's not happening already, I suspect it will soon. You're going to have your tenants asking for rent relief. And, you know, you can understand that. But, I mean, your first response is probably going to be, well, you know, I've got to pay my bills, I've got to pay my interest on my mortgage and I'm not running a philanthropic society. But having said that, your tenants are your partners in the deal because they're the ones that, so long as they're there paying rent, they are paying your bills. And so you can't ignore their concerns, but you've just got to be careful because, and particularly if, if you do have a retail tenancy in there, because you've got to be aware that you might give them some rent relief, but really because of the nature of their business, that they may well not weather the storm. Now, the query is how long is that storm going to be? I mean, the the ideal scenario is that over the next two or three months, we go through the worst of it. There's a, a decline in, in infections, which we seem to be seeing in China at the moment. And therefore, People will come out the end, the other side, and they will weather it then with your help, with the rent relief, that'll make things a bit easier. I guess the way I look at it is that in any negotiation, if someone wants something, you've got to trade something for it. Yep. So what I would be doing as a landlord, and, and this is the advice I'm giving to my clients, is if let's say they've got a couple of years to run on a lease and they've got a five-year option, what I would say to the tenant is, well, look, you know, I'm prepared to consider a month or two rent-free if you would exercise your option early. That's a great idea. 
there's no requirement for them to do it, but it doesn't cost them anything to do it. Yep. And if, if their intention is to stay on, well, that, and from their perspective, they think, well, gee, all I've got to do is send a, a letter saying, here, I hereby exercise my option due in two years' time. But in return, they get one, two, three. It's probably worth at least two or three months to you because instead of a two-year lease, you now have a seven-year lease. Yep. Now, if you want to then refinance the property, it will be a much higher value with a seven-year tenancy than it, than it is with a short-term two-year tenancy because an option is only the tenant's way. It's not your way. You can't force them to take the option. Now, you don't have to fix the rent for what it'll be in two years. At that point, you then have a discussion as to an increased rent and you can always go to determination if, if you can't agree. But at least the tenant is locked in. And it means that the tenant, yes, you have to forego a couple of months rent free, but the tenant is still paying rent and enables you to pay your bills. Now, if the tenant is going to go under, whether or not you've got a two-year lease or a seven-year lease, it's not going to make any difference. If that's going to happen because they're just not trading well or they suffer too much cash flow damage, there's nothing you can do about it. But on paper, you have a much stronger tenancy in your property. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So that's a landlord. From an investor's point of view, when these sort of things happen, when investors are confused, they tend to do nothing. And that actually opens an opportunity for those who know what they're doing to buy well. And I say that because there are some vendors that legitimately have to sell. They're not just testing the market. They have reasons to sell. It might be that they have a change of circumstances and therefore they're obliged to actually put the property on the market. So if that's the case, the last thing they want to do is have the property sit around for two, three, four, five months. So vendors tend to be more realistic and therefore investors, as I said, if you know your your stuff and you have your finance sorted out, you can generally buy pretty well in these circumstances because the the market moves sideways. There's nothing wrong with the property. There's nothing wrong necessarily with the tenant. And I'm assuming it's not retail, but it's probably a, a solid office tenant. You then are in a, a reasonably strong position if you're in a position to make a decision quickly. Now, you see, in these sort of events, demand is merely being deferred. It's not disappearing. And once yep. we get over this, the demand will be back. Now, the, the residential market might suffer more. I mean, they've got a practical issue of how do you conduct healthy inspections with so many people going around. Now, with commercial, it's a different thing because you, you don't have mass inspections. They're generally one-on-one personal inspections. So that's not so much an issue. But having said that, there's still going to be some potential investor buyers who are not going to risk an inspection. Doesn't yep. mean they don't want to buy. Doesn't mean they haven't got the money ready to buy. It's just that there is this hiatus that you have to get over. So the demand doesn't disappear, as I said. It's just simply being deferred. So once we get over this, the demand will come back again. So there's this window of opportunity where, as an investor, a smart investor, you can generally buy pretty well. Yeah, I love that. So the retail market is probably going to be hit the worst. What other sectors do you think would be next? Well, look, I think everything's going to suffer. I mean, I noticed that Ernst & Young or, or 
EY as they're now called, the accountants have just have broken their staff into the blue team and the white team. And what they're doing is alternating a week in the office or a week working from home. Okay. So those working from home are, are banned. They cannot go into the office at all. Then they rotate the teams and do it the other way. Now, that's a probably a creative way to overcome it. And the reason I think they're doing that is that not everyone is suited to working from home. Yeah. Right Now, the co-working spaces, the ones that are you're there on an itinerant basis, either on a weekly or monthly tenancy, and everyone works together and shares and networks and so forth, I think they're going to probably be the hardest hit sooner because there's no long-term tenancy involved, and therefore they're likely to say, well, you know, it's nice to go into the office and, and chat with everyone, but, you know, realistically, I should work from home. Now, the thing that people have got to watch is the psychological impact because there are some people who cannot work alone. They, yeah. just, they need that interaction. Now, I know when I sold my business and then realised I didn't need to work in an office because I'd effectively set myself up online and so I could work from home. And the only thing I missed was sort of the infrastructure that a larger office provides and you have to do everything yourself. You know, and I'm not a good typist, so you end up adapting with drag and direct voice typing. Yeah. So, so there are ways around it, but not everyone is like that. Not everyone can exist by themselves. And I, I guess with my business, you know, we're chatting now on this interview, but I'm on the phone most of the day. I'm sending emails and so forth. I'm in regular contact. Yes, I have meetings. Yes, I have inspections of properties. But interestingly, 80% of my clients are interstate. Now, they happen to want to buy in Melbourne because Melbourne seems to be the market that they feel most comfortable with. But I operate from a home office. And I think what might be interesting, and there's no way we'll know this until after the event, but there might be some people that have always hesitated about working from home and actually find quite pleasant and easy because I mean if you want to you can actually just operate in your pajamas you know you don't yeah. have to get dressed up so there might be some that decide if it works well because they're forced to do it both from the company's perspective and their perspective then they decide they want to continue on afterwards yeah well right so there are going to be some that won't but there I think there will be a a surprising number that will. Now, that will could permanently affect the co-working spaces because they went in there because they've always been used to, if they worked in a corporate setup and went out by themselves, used to the office environment, so therefore they went into a co-working space when they did started up their, their own personal business. But if they're forced to work from home, they might say, well, gee, we, you know, we didn't suffer that much, so let's keep it up. And likewise, you might find some of the the firms, the, the larger firms in and around the capital cities who have offices suddenly find that might only be 10% of their workforce say, so look, you know, if you're comfortable, we're comfortable, let's just leave this home office business and let it continue. Now, that could have going forward an, an impact, not necessarily a dramatic impact, but an impact on how much space those firms will need going forward, you might find that they're able to trim their space needs down by 10, maybe 15%. Yeah, wow. It's 
So I guess this could be looked at as kind of an opportunity for the worker to test that kind of environment and prove to the business owner that it is feasible and they can get probably more work done at home. Well, well, that and proof to themselves too. Yeah. We're in uncharted waters here and sometimes it's not until you're forced to change the way you do something that you actually recognise the benefits of doing that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Chris. Well, the nine-step formula was so popular for just $1. Are you still comfortable to put that on there? Well, look, it was, and it surprised me. And look, I'll be more than happy to let it run again. So I'll leave you to provide the the details to get it for what is normally $67 for a dollar. Yeah, that's right. And all you need to do is click on the link in the show notes and then insert 66 off into the coupon code. And then you get the nine step formula for just $1. And it's an absolutely amazing offer. Thank you for that, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris Lang, for being on the show today. My pleasure. next interview the audio gets a little bit dicey a few times but Wayne and Dell drop some absolute gems of wisdom so it's definitely worth listening to. Wayne and Dell Stitcher are our everyday investors on fire today. How are you both? Very well Andrew, thank you. Very well, thanks Andrew. Excellent. Now in this segment I throw rapid fire questions at everyday investors who are living proof that commercial property is for every Australian and not just the super rich. Are you ready to go? Yes, we are. Yes. Okay, great. So why did you choose commercial property? We had quite an extensive portfolio of residential properties, which we'd sort of accumulated over the years. And just due to the declining returns on residential and also the tightening of uh, restrictions, you know, tenants' rights and tightening against landlords, it was just becoming more and more and more difficult to manage. So had read a little bit about commercial over the years and decided that that would be a better option. What assets do you currently own? At the moment, we still unfortunately have some residential properties and we're in two syndicates with Chris Lang. And oh, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and they've been fantastic. One is a um, premises in Brighton, in Martin Street, and the other one is a premises in um, Fitzroy Street at St Kilda. Okay, great. And so, what is your combined net income for those properties? That is a fantastic question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is that a monthly income or? Yeah, I mean, monthly or, or annually, we can figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> monthly, it's around the 12000 12000 a month. Okay, great. Well, no, eight. Maybe nine. Maybe nine. 9000 Yeah. Okay. It would be 10. And that's combined. <laughs> Is that combined? Yes. Okay, so it's about 108000 a year. You say so. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So you mentioned that you're in a syndicate. How much was the uh, initial investment to get into those two syndicates? 
it's around about 600,000 each. Okay, great. So it's about 1.2. Excellent. So how did you find Chris Lang? Googled him. <laughs> so so you, you, did you read any of his books or like how else did you, how did you know he was uh, very, very good at what he does? Well, Dell had, we had read some of his commercial uh, books over the years and Dell had been aware of Chris for some time and, and periodically before we joined his inner circle, she had phoned him just out of the blue and Chris had always answered her questions without obligation or without um, pressure, always genuinely wanting to assist. And then we'd uh, subscribe to his, his email and saw that he was opening his inner circle. So um, as soon as he did that, we, we applied and uh, we were graciously accepted, which has been a fantastic journey. That's great. So what is the cap rate for these properties? I knew you were going to ask a question like that. And <laughs> I had actually phoned Chris to find out that I wouldn't look as uh, unintelligent as I possibly am. About 5.9% originally for the Brighton property. And it's uh, running at about 6.4% at the moment. Is, the that for, is that for each property or is that combined? No, that's the, the Brighton property, and St Kilda oh, okay. one is run, running at about 6.7%. Okay, great. That's really, really good. So mm. for the listeners who may not understand what a syndicate is, can you just explain that quickly? Uh, a syndicate is fantastic. I call it commercial investing for dummies, which we fall <laughs> well and truly in the category of. A syndicate is Chris has sourced the property, he has put together a group of people who put in some money and together, through the combined purchasing power of a number of investors, we buy a quality product at, with great tenants at a good rate and with a good return. And um, these syndicates truly have given us access to properties that we would have never have dreamed of and um, just the mentorship and the guidance from Chris has been phenomenal. Yeah, it sounds like it's a really great way to get your foot in the door and without that risk of losing a fair bit of money yourself because you've got, you know, such a, a great investor on your team, Chris Lang. Exactly right, Andrew. And the other important aspect to remember with a syndicate deal is that the group of investors, which is Wayne and I as one of them, do not own the property. There is a company established that owns the property and we are the unit holders. We can say to the other investors or to Chris Lang uh, that we want to, we're interested in selling our shares and the other investors can buy us out. So we're not tied to the market as such in trying to sell it ourselves we're just one of the investors yeah it's great it gives you a lot more flexibility doesn't it in case the market goes south or you just want to do something else with your money exactly right so with the uh, syndicate what was the purchase price for these two for the st kilda one it was 
around the 7 million mark. Okay. And for the Brighton one, it was just under 6 million. Okay. And how many shares are in the unit trust? I mean, shareholders? Yeah, shareholders, sorry. How many shareholders are in the unit trust? About five in each, give okay. or take. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. So who's who tenants these properties and what type of property are they? The Brighton property has a aged care um, or aged care head office and they manage their aged care facilities throughout Australia from the one in Brighton, whilst the St Kilda one has an advertising agency. Okay, so they're both office assets? Yes. Okay, great. Excellent. So when you entered into the syndicate, did Chris give you an idea of the the value upsides to it, where he's going to add value to the assets? Yes, he did. And um, and he moved on that very quickly, and especially with um, during the the process of purchase with the Brighton properties, and he had them restructured so that every office became a separate lease. Even though they were being tenanted by the one tenant, so that gave flexibility if that tenant decided to downsize for any reason that we could actually lease off one or two or three of the offices. Yeah, it's a really good way to add value, isn't it? It's by strata titling the the asset and then making it into separate pieces and then you can just uh, you know rent it up whenever you want. Well, well, that's right. Plus, he's done, instead of one lease for 17 offices, he's done 17 separate leases. So, okay. uh, it, I wouldn't say they'd be strata titled because it's just one property, yep. one, one ownership, but multiple leases within that property. Okay. That's, that's interesting. We sat in the solicitor's office and also um, when in the finance broker's office whilst we were negotiating and Chris was there and Dell and I would often look at each other and just <laughs> blankly and go, how on earth do you know these things? Yeah, he's very good at what he does and he's out of a 50 years experience. He's very, very knowledgeable. So are there any plans for any future purchases? When funds become available? Certainly, um, we we do a number of other investment type things, and and truly, this is so much easier than residential. We do private lending as well, which is um, full of problems and twists and turns. Whereas we virtually never hear about these properties. We see dollar signs in the bank account every month, and that's all we worry about. Yeah, it's a great system, isn't it? Yeah. If I could just say, Chris has established so many reputable companies to support him in the real estate industry, finance, legal, etc. So he has a top relationship with all these intricate people that manage and are responsible for the setup for the syndicate deals. He's just established such good relationships that we don't have any problems associated with those day-to-day running of the properties. He's got a great team. Mm. Yeah, that's great. I love that. 
So mm. have you reached your cash flow goal or do you have a higher cash flow goal in mind or a target? No, I don't think there'd ever be a satisfaction of income when you want to contribute to furthering the benefit of other people. A main aim for Wayne and I is um, contribution and so to keep going and you know keep an income coming in and keep growing that is vitally important to our goal of contribution to the, the wider community in the world. Yeah that's great. Have you had any major problems along the way like vacancies for any other properties or equipment breakdowns or damage? Not with these. We did own one commercial property ourselves before we um, were introduced or before we met Chris and it returned very well until a tenant left and Chris helped us sell it before it became problematic. So we've had no problems with the syndicate deals but privately ourselves we certainly have. Did you have any like, basic knowledge of commercial or did you just jump straight in? We had some basic knowledge and I think that may have been through reading Chris's book, but in hindsight, we probably didn't read Chris's book thoroughly enough because we made quite a few of the fundamental mistakes. The return was good. Uh, the leases to us seemed to be reasonably good. But when we told Chris about it, he just shook his head. Rookie mistake. So. Uh, <laughs> So could you explain some of the uh, the fundamental mistakes that that you had? Well, one of them was location. Okay. <laughs> it, wasn't in a metro, it wasn't in a CBD. Um, and the other was that the tenants were not stable. They weren't in stable industry. Retail. Yeah, they were in oh, retail. Okay. Fair enough. So was there anything else to that property? How long were the leases? Three years. They're reasonable leases. Three years. One had a um, one had a three-year option on it, but the other one didn't. They had just re-signed the lease, and it looked as though, in hindsight, that they'd been uh, coerced into signing new leases to make it more saleable. Right. So the vendors made them sign it, and they weren't ever going to pick up that option yeah yeah fair enough it's not a good thing is it what one skill or attribute do you think you need to be successful at commercial property Ooh. i think one of the areas that wayne and i've always maintained is you got to think outside the box you got to be able to step outside the norm of what the majority of people are thinking or doing at the time and at right. the time when we went into the syndicate with Chris, the market was pretty good, but yep. a lot of vacancies in commercial properties on the smaller scale. So your little offices in a small complex, similar to the one property we had on the Sunshine Coast. So you had to think outside the box and think bigger, which meant thinking in the millions of dollars rather than the hundreds and thousands. So to be able to get into those properties that are in the millions of dollars, we had to then consider, well, how do we do that? So that was when we started reading up about joint ventures, syndicates, and all those avenues. Okay, great. 
So what one resource would you recommend on commercial property? Chris Lang. <laughs> it's a great suggestion. I, I, I really do believe that it's a great suggestion. Is there anything else that you would recommend? Anything, I guess, anything written by Chris Lang? Chris's books have been fantastic. His, his website is, is good. There, there are a number of courses as well, but from my point of view, there's nothing like talking to the master. Yep. And Chris, Chris again, is, is incredibly approachable. And we joined his mentoring team. If we have any problems, and we, we're very passive, but if we have any problems, it's just a phone call to Chris, and they usually resolve within minutes. You cannot suggest a book, a website, a course, or anything that trumps that. So, yes, whilst it's great to have a foundation knowledge, and we came into commercial with a foundation knowledge through residential, and a lot of the knowledge is transferable, but wow, didn't we realise that there was so much more to learn? Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a whole different beast. Well, the, the main difference is the leases. The, the value of a commercial property, it's not only in that commercial property, but in the lease and what is in that lease. And that is where it's different from a residential. Residential, you're tied up in the value of the property, whereas with commercial, your lease is your value. If you don't have tenants, you have no value in that property. Yeah, that's right. Chris Lang has taught you well. Thank <laughs> you. And what he can, what he negotiates in a lease, you know, it, it's magic. The way he can weave weave his magic with a, a lease, and it, we learned a lot just sitting in the same room as him when he negotiated a lot of these things. And it was great that he allowed us to do that. Yeah, that's that's actually really, really special, isn't it, to be able to see someone with that much experience going at it like that. I think that's really great. Well, he doesn't hold back either, Andrew. He he is quite willing to share his knowledge. When Wayne was saying, you know, we we can give him a call on his mobile and and he will answer either straight away or send a quick message and say, I'll get back to you. He's accessible, whereas a lot of other people in the property industry are not accessible. They want you to talk to other people in the office, anybody else but themselves. So this is a great man in his integrity where he will speak to you. He, it's his name on the line and his reputation, and he, he's out there willing to expose himself, his own mobile number to you, and he's accessible. Yeah, that's right, and he, he delivers, doesn't he? Yes, every time. Yes, and he's a gentleman. He's, he's just a, a genuine, genuine person. Exactly. All right, guys, well, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Wayne and Dell, for being on fire today. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. It's been our pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. That brings us to the end of another great show. Thank you to all my guests for giving up their time today. And I want to say a massive thank you to you guys, the listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the show. The response has been fantastic. I want you to know that we are committed to bringing the highest quality commercial investing information to you guys. 
If you're enjoying the show, please show your support by giving me a five-star review and subscribing to the show. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. Stay safe and corona-free. See ya. This has been a Developer Life production.